and probably most special event of the Edinburgh International Book Festival this year. I do apologise for the delay bringing you in. You'll appreciate um, it's slightly more complex than any event we've ever done before. Indeed, it's a completely pioneering event on this side of the Atlantic. Um, I'm Catherine Lockerbie. I'm the director of the Edinburgh International Book Festival, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this event with the giant of American letters, Norman Mailer, and the Booker shortlisted, award-winning, uh, one of the most brilliant writers of his generation, Andrew O'Hagan, and Margaret Atwood's amazing invention, The Long Pen, which you'll be seeing more of later. Um, for me, this was a way of making possible something that otherwise would have been impossible uh, to bring Norman Mailer to you. He was unable to make the journey across the Atlantic much as he desired to. I want to just briefly explain the structure of the event. Most of you will have had letters, some of you won't. Uh, so just to explain how it'll go. We have started late, so it will finish late. I apologize for that, of, of course. Um, we hope you are able to stay. Andrew O'Hagan and Norman Mailer will be in conversation. There'll be a chance to ask questions from the floor, just as in a live event. It is a live event. Uh, please do try to keep them succinct, if you can. Uh, we'll then draw 30 raffle tickets. It's a nice combination of low-tech and high-tech, this event. Uh, we like the, the conjunction. If your number is called, please make your way down to the front, towards the kiosk, with your book. Um, you'll be helped to place your book in the correct position and you'll see Mr. Mailer on screen. And again, you'll be able to ask him something, but please, for obvious reasons, please do keep it brief. He won't be able to sign any dedications, just his name, which is remarkable enough. A couple of things just about the context. The sound in the theatre today is very sensitive so that uh, Norman Mailer can hear. If you're whispering about what you want to have for your tea later, He'll probably hear it, so just to be aware, okay? Make it, make it something good, you know? Um, the event is being recorded for possible use on the Long Pen website. We've got the BBC in as well, just so that you're aware of that. And if you are one of the people having your book signed, that exchange is recorded, and in a couple of weeks' time, you will be able to download for free a video of you having your book signed from the Long Pen website. Um, we, you are very welcome, the audience not having books signed, you are very welcome, we'd be delighted if you stayed in your seats and, and watched this process happening. Um, that, I think, is it. Uh, that's the technical bit, don't want to hold you up anymore. Now for the literature, please welcome, as I say, one of the most brilliant writers of his generation, Andrew Hagen. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine, and welcome all of you to this remarkable event in Edinburgh. I must say to you that it is for me a great personal pleasure to be able to speak once again this year to Norman Mailer. We've worked together not only in his hometown of Provincetown, but also at the New York Public Library very recently. But this, I think, is the most auspicious event um, here at the Edinburgh Festival. Norman, for me, uh, is the great living American novelist, the most various, with the most... Uh, capacious literary intelligence and a willingness and a daring to get into the business of our time like few other writers one can imagine. He was born in 1923 in New Jersey. He went to Harvard where he enjoyed his education and soon after he went on war service where he served in the South Pacific. He returned of course to write perhaps the best single novel to come out of the Second World War 
which was the naked and the dead, catapulted Norman to immediate fame internationally. He went to Hollywood very soon afterwards. Uh, he stayed there a while. He also wrote the Barbary Shore, The Deer Park, the novel American Dream. He has twice been shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize, once in 1968 for Armies of the Night, and again for The Executioner's Song, a brilliant, startling innovation in American letters, published in 1980. He's also won the National Book Award for that novel. He was the president of American Pen for a period in the 1980s. I'd like to ask you again, as we bring Norman up, to put your hands together for the great Norman Mailer. Norman, welcome uh, to Edinburgh. Welcome to the best literary festival in the world. Are you hearing me? Oh, just about, Andrew. I, I can't see you, darn it. Oh, well, that's always a pleasure, people often say. But um, let's try and fix that, because I don't want to deny you any opportunities. Oh, here. now I can see you. There you go. Now I can see you. Good. Norman. A Andrew, let me say one thing. Yes. The, be the best time I probably ever had at a literary festival was Edinburgh some years ago. In, in the early so 60s. Come this year. And when I was invited, I said, yes, yes, I'll be there. The trouble is my health is not what I would like it to be. And so I'm not here except through um, a system I detest, technology. <laughs> I, th I think you've said earlier today that you felt a bit like a young chimpanzee, is that right? I said they needed a young chimpanzee to do this stuff. <laughs> you're doing very well with it. Um, you came here in the early 60s to Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh Writers Conference with William Burroughs and Mary McCarthy, uh, a famous Scottish poet, the premier Scottish poet of that period, Hugh McDermott, uh, felt that Burroughs shouldn't be on a platform but in jail. You had to defend Mr. Burroughs at that time. Could you just tell us about that incident? Oh, with what I remember of it, um, Burroughs, you know, was always his own man, and completely so. And um, the prosecuting attorney hardly knew what to do with him, because he's being in, he was being interrogated on his writing methods. And he explained that he would write these pieces of paper and then tear them in half and reassemble them. And um, the prosecuting attorney said, do you do this to make sense? And Burroughs looked at him and said, of course. <laughs> brought a call over the courtroom. And, uh, but truly, that's all I remember of that. Other than that, the Burroughs handled himself very well. You have another connection with Scotland in that your late former wife, Jeannie Campbell, was Scottish. Did you ever come here with her? Jeannie Campbell? Yes. Jeannie Campbell, my, my third wife? Yes. Of course I came here with her. You, you, you my God, uh, um, had a pretty interesting session up at the castle in Argyle with her father, the Duke. Tell us about that. Well, I, I don't want to tell too many tales oh, come on. too loosely, but let me just say that uh, the Duke didn't like me much and I didn't like him much. <laughs> and we had some very interesting experiences. He, he took us one day to uh, one of his favorite taverns on the lake, a lovely inn on the lake, and he had a fine wine and I was sipping it. He said, uh, you don't like wine much, do you, Mailer? I said, no, if the truth be told, if I'm ever a Bolshevik and the, taking over the world, 
what I'll do is I'll throw away all this wine and bring in the booze. Now, of course, of course I didn't mean it. I just wanted to make him, I just wanted to drive him up the wall. <laughs> I'm sure that might have worked. Now, Norman, you... He, he believed everything I said. Well, so he should. Now, you've written about many memorable 20th century figures, of course, Muhammad Ali, Kennedy, Marilyn. I want to ask you why Hitler, your latest novel is about Hitler, why did you choose him now? Oh, he's been with me since I was nine years old. My mother, who was a very, uh, uh, particularly a sensitive woman, once said very gloomily, not once, but often, before he's done, he's going to kill half the Jews. And uh, so I felt this is the man that's going to kill me. And uh, he was marked. And I, I, I don't think I've spent a day of my life <clears throat> since in which I haven't thought about him for a moment or two. So no, I, this book was something I wanted to do for a long time. What I'd like to do, and I'm not going to make any promises, is I would like to live long enough to carry the book further to say, let us say, Hitler to the age of 30 or yeah. 40. Uh, whether I can do it or not is highly, it's dubious. Would you, go as, just a, oh. would you go as far as to say, Norman, that the Second World War and the events of that time have been the central business of your experience uh, in your life and as a writer, the time that you served has been, if you like, a backbone to your work? There's no getting around it. The, the Second World War was the watershed experience for my generation. And I think for younger writers now in America, they do not have that watershed experience. They do not have something they all share in common. <coughs> it's, it's very hard to explain why having a point of reference is so useful to a writer. You have written intelligently about the question of violence being a new subject for 20th century novelists and that the 19th century novelists didn't deal with violence. Could you just expatiate on that for us? The 19th century novelists had all they could do to deal with sex. They uh, had it treated at a remove. They wrote about it almost, you might say, it, at elbow length. And, uh, but they did their best because for them that was the most fascinating aspect of human behavior. For us it was immensely interesting but even more interesting was violence, because we hadn't gone near it in the 19th century. And so the idea of the violent man, who had some sort of moral sense, became a fascinating figure for some of us. I know for me, certainly. And uh, I've always been fascinated with violent men. Uh, the unhappy aspect of it is that you then receive the reputation that you are violent. Now, I don't think I'm any more uh, difficult to get along with than the average person. But for years, people were literally afraid of me. Oh, don't go near Norman Mailer. He'll throw a punch at you, you know, which was idiotic. Well, you did throw uh, a few punch, punches, Norman, in your time, did you not? Well, I threw a few, but they always, they always were well-considered. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and something could be said, something could be said from my side of the story to which I've been insulted one way or another. I never went around hitting uh, people smaller than me if I could help it. Yes. Because there's no way, that's awful. 
Do you think? Do you think that when you look at you, your work through the decades from the Naked and the Dead, you look at an American Dream, you look at um, the Executioner's Song. Do you, are you surprised by the depth of your preoccupation with violence in that century? No, not at all. For for me, it was it was something to write about that others didn't write about. When you're a novelist, you're always looking for material that you can write about with some authority that others don't go near. That's, that's part of the excitement of writing a novel. You don't want to write a novel that others have written already. You, you know, I've never written about my family for a very simple reason. I come from a good middle-class family life. And if I had to write about them, it would have its little ups and downs. And be a, I imagine I could write a perfectly good novel about them. But I don't know, they would, it would change anything in the given. When you write a novel, you really want to change, uh, when I say you want to change the given, you want to alter the nature of human consciousness. That's what we're there for. We're there as a replacement for the priests, the police, the lawmakers, uh, the what have you. We, we, we see an aspect of moral behavior that the others, because of their structure of their thinking, can't quite go, quite, can't quite go near. But for your generation, wasn't there the added element, perhaps, the, there was the threat of mass violence as represented by the atom bomb that conditioned your generation's responses to the notion of fear and terror and violence. Yes, but look, there are two kinds of violence, and people don't make the, the critical distinction. There's mass violence, which is impersonal, and in a uh, bizarre sense, flavorless. And what I mean by flavorless is it's hideous. It's, it's all of one taste. It's all, it's en masse. And, and millions can be executed in a very short time. And that's hideous, and that's without, that, that characterizes the, uh, the, 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 the sin and the scandal of the 20th century. Individual violence is something else. Individual violence is as different from uh, uh, mass violence as individual romance is from, uh, from mass orgies. I'll take your word for that. Is, is there a sense, Norman, in which this latest American and British adventure in Iraq um, illustrates some of your points? I mean, let me ask it another way. Is there any sense in which this can be an honorable war? I don't think there's any way that the war in Iraq can be an honorable war, because I don't think, first of all, it's very difficult to talk about an honorable war, uh, since the low motives to bring on a war are always prevalent. However, there are wars that are relatively honorable. Uh, the war against Hitler was relatively honorable. Uh, the war in Vietnam was probably not relatively honorable. The war in Iraq is absolutely dishonorable. It, it, it's a, a foul, stupid war that wasn't necessary and has just disrupted the given and making everything worse. And it was done for political reasons. It was done, and I don't want to get into it because I can go on forever with the list. But the fact of the matter is that, that Bush had, done, had a lot of problems on his hands, and he was trying to hand a great deal of money to the wealthy through tax rebates of various sorts. And he needed something like a war to get Americans going. If we have one vice in, in my country, it's that we're egregious patriots. We're patriots before we even look at the situation. In other words, if someone says America's in danger, we yell, give me my gun, I'm here to defend my country. Well, that's all very well when a country's in danger. But when it's not, and you're acting as if the country's in danger, then mental desuetude commences. 
would you be saying too much to suggest that as a Christian country, a self-professed Christian nation, that America suffers a certain amount of psychic disturbance from not being as good a country as it wants to be or thinks it should be? Well, it's Christians, you see, it is a Christian nation. They have a, uh, what we have here is a great unspoken guilt and how much money we make. And this is really something that's never taken on in American life. Americans never talk about the fact that uh, good Christians are supposed to give their money to the poor, not enrich themselves. And so we made a compromise. We enrich ourselves five or six days a week and go to church on Sunday. And that, in your view, has created a condition where people feel almost as if they're living in a, a condition of bad faith. Is that, is, that, is that the issue? I think most Americans live with a bad conscience, which is why we're so over-patriotic. That is, there's, you know, patriotism can be defended like any other powerful emotion of, of a nation, provided it's in proportion to the reality of the situation. If a nation is fighting for its life, Patriotism is one thing. If a nation has invaded a relatively small and helpless nation, well, under the assumption that it's a very dangerous nation, then patriotism becomes an ill. Would, would you care to offer a few thoughts, Norman, since we have you, on why Britain seems to be so keen to join in these American adventures? Is this, do you have any thoughts about that relationship specifically? You know, I don't know enough to speak with authority. I, I do know that Blair, who did seem so marvelous, uh, had gotten to the point where we used to laugh over here when we heard that the British were calling uh, Blair Bush's poodle. Because we thought, well, that's exactly what he deserves for getting into this idiotic war. I don't pretend to understand Blair. I don't know how he could have gotten into a war that was so obviously stupid. You know, Bush is, Bush is not an intelligent man. He thinks in slogans. <coughs> Blair is intelligent. How could he have gotten into a war between two people who've been at odds with each other for something like 800 years. The Sunnis and the Shiites have been hating each other for that period. How do you bring democracy to a country that's cloven in two uh, with, with, with undying century-old hatreds? I'll never understand Tony Blair. I, well, I don't even know that Tony Blair would claim to understand Tony Blair anymore, but certainly he might invoke the word God, as you have done, um, suggesting perhaps that it's more interesting for a novelist to believe in God than not to. W would you care to talk about that? I didn't get it. I'm sorry, Andrew, I didn't get you on that one. Let me repeat that. I was just suggesting, uh, picking up on this point that you've made elsewhere, we talked about it in Provincetown several months ago for the Parish Review, where you suggested that believing in God as you do is a more interesting condition for a novelist. Oh. I'm glad I asked you to repeat the question. Yes, look, look, I believe in a God who is not a lawgiver, but a creator. Uh, a God who's doing the best that he or she can do against great odds. A God who can succeed or fail. The notion of God is all perfect, is all loving, all powerful, utterly in command, makes no sense to me because that's not, that's not the way I see the world. I, I think if that, if that is the God, if we have a God who's all perfect and entirely in control, and we have this world, then by the logic of it, we have rather an unpleasant God, a sadist, um, uh, 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 what can I say at best, a theatrical uh, impresario who loves watching 
the torments of his actors. No, I believe God's doing the best that he or she can do, and it's under huge odds. Because there are forces in the universe that don't want God's vision to prevail, and God's vision is us, we humans. In the new novel, you of course feature Satan as a character, and it seems to be an assumption in the new novel that Satan must be somehow equal to God. Is that your feeling? The state? Satan. The state is equal. Satan. The, state. the devil. Uh, oh, no, no. No, I don't feel that. Uh, to the contrary. I think the state is a manifest of all sorts of uh, human errors, godly errors, and diabolical intentions. State is a, is a very complex uh, edifice, which, which hampers us as much as it aids us. What is your attitude towards Satan, Nor Norman, towards the devil who features in the new novel? Um, he features as a character, um, manifest evil and badness in Satan. Yes. I, I, uh, for some reason, I'm now having trouble hearing you. Dwayne, can you, can you help us here? Yes, go ahead, Andy. I'm just uh, trying to engage Norman on the question of uh, Satan being a character uh, in the castle in the forest um, and if he feels that Satan in order to be true as a fictional character must be somehow equal to the powers of God. Did you understand that? Is Satan's power equal to God as in the character of the novel? Uh, in, in, in the way I see it. Satan's power has to be equal to God, <coughs> or else it's all a comedy. The point is, God has a vision of existence. As this, is, this is just my theology. God has a vision of existence. We are, the, we are the lively elements, we human beings, are the lively elements of that sense of where God wants to go, where God's vision wants to take us. The devil is a foe who's equal in power to God. It, it's a long, ongoing, deadly war between God and the devil. And we are in the middle of it, sometimes working for one, sometimes working for the other. All this in five minutes, you know, uh, sounds a little extreme. But you did ask me to get into it. Yeah, I wanted you, know, you to like, get into it because it's I, so sad. I never central. have a good theology yet, whoever took a backward step. <laughs> I want to just move on for a few minutes and ask you, Norman, about the question of fame and success because perhaps all right. of all American novelists, you have enjoyed or suffered fame since the days of your first novel. To what extent has that been at the center of your experience as a creative artist, the idea of fame and celebrity? It alters everything. Once you're famous as an author, you can no longer be the same author you were when you started. And in the beginning, it's very tough. You, you feel you're cut off from your roots. After a time, I realized that it was I had to, all I had to live with, and I'd better damn well make use of it. And the fact is that there are advantages to it as well. One can't pretend that fame is a total loss. For one thing, it gives you insight to the sort of people you normally wouldn't dare to go near. I speak of such people as Muhammad Ali, uh, Marilyn Monroe, uh, Jack Kennedy, uh, Adolf Hitler, uh, uh, Gary Gilmore, all the people who become larger than life, since in a small way the author has himself become a bit larger than life, it, it enables him to see what it's like to create a character who's living without normal roots. 
When you went to see Jack Kennedy uh, in 61 to write that Esquire piece, the famous piece that became Superman Comes to the Supermarket, did you feel some yeah. equivalence in, in the terms of you were a famous man by that time? Do you, felt it, you feel it gave you an insight into what was happening to him? No, not yet. That was still too early. That was in 61. That was 12 years after the Naked and the Dead. Um, I'd, say, I'd say it took another good 15 or 20 years before I began to see, yes, this is something I can truly write about. I don't think I really tried to understand Jack Kennedy in the way I tried to understand uh, Marilyn Monroe or Hitler or Muhammad Ali or a, or a whole bunch of them, or, or Gary Gilmore for that matter. Just to wind, Harvey Oswald is a good example. Yes. Just to wind up on that uh, question of fame, the great art show that's here in Edinburgh during the festival is, of course, Andy Warhol's work. And I just wanted to ask you before we go to questions from this audience, what's your view of Warhol as somebody who perhaps was the poet of fame when it came to uh, American painters? Did you have affection for his work? No, I didn't touch that his work. Absolutely detested. See why? I thought, I thought it was unbelievably overrated. In fact, when I start talking about possible downfall of civilization, <laughs> I say contrast. Contrast the work of Picasso in his day to Warhol's and ours, and you can see how far we've fallen in the arts. And you ever, did you encounter each other during the 60s? You know, I never had any run-ins with him that were ugly. We hardly knew each other. Uh, he had a very mild personality, as you know. So when we'd meet, he'd say, hello, Norman. I'd say, hello, Andy, and that was it. That was it. And I never spoke out against him while he was alive. I uh, am now doing the less admirable business of speaking out against him now that he's gone. <laughs> but nonetheless, I'm just fed up. I'm just fed up with hearing uh, Warhol taken as a serious artist. I think he, what he painted was the void. Do you have any he, he, he sense of the, of the intensifying void in human experience? Do you have any respect for the, for the underground films? Because of course you spent a number of years trying to direct underground movies yourself. Did you have yes. any different feeling about perhaps what he achieved as a filmmaker? Well, Warhol's achievement as a filmmaker, what's his achievement? It's totally different from any thing I did, good or bad. Uh, his achievement was small, but most intense. 50 years from now, he may be considered quite important as a filmmaker, because what he will get across is how dead and dull life was in those years. In other words, his people do nothing. They, uh, they're full of vapors. They gasp, they sigh, they sit around, they go to the urinal, they come out, they say something. They go back to the urinal. They come out. You get a feeling of what it's like living in a dreary apartment in a dreary <laughs> city, in a dreary time. And my movies were totally different, and for the most part failed, because they were wild and they were ill-conceived. And uh, I was trying for more than I could bring off with my experience. So I don't think there's any comparison between the two movies. His movies, for what they were, worked. And my movies, for what they were, didn't work at the level I wanted them to work at. Just before we move on, is there something you'd like to say about a possible connection between the urge to write novels and the urge to direct movies? Did you understand a connection between those two things? Oh, I do, I do. It's very simple. When you're writing, you're alone. 
You've got the slave of the blank page in front of you. You've got the anxiety every morning when you go in and there's that page looking at you. You've got to pull it out of yourself. Whereas when you're a director, you're in a marvelous situation. You're a general and there's no blood on the field to speak of. And um, everybody respects you like a general. All my life, I wanted to be a general. <laughs> I was not competent to be a general. However, as a director, I could be a general. Uh, through six marriages, I've said to the wife, darling, could you put a little spit curl in the corner of your forehead? And every time the wife would say, would you please get lost, you see? But with, when they brought up Isabella Rossellini to me, when I was making the movie uh, with her in it, uh, tough guys don't dance. Uh, and that, that, not tough guys, anyway, let that go. When I made the movie, I brought her, I said, could you put a little spit curl on Isabella's forehead? And the hairdresser said, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> that is the immense difference. Fantastic. Now, Norman, stick with us. We're going to open up to the audience for some questions. And then, as right. we discussed, we're going to have you sign some books with this wonderful mechanism. So just let's go straight into the audience for some questions. There's a lady just here. Just wait for the mic, madam, if you would, so that Norman can hear you. I'll repeat the question, Norman, if you need to hear it again. Hello, it's, it's a question to do with some of the things you've talked about. I was interested in what you said about the war. Um, Osama bin Laden has said that there's no danger of America prevailing against him because America is too decadent to fight a war. Is he right? Was Osama right when he said that America was too decadent to fight a war against him? Well, that's his opinion. The fact of the matter is America's huge and he's relatively small. And he loves the idea that he succeeded in terrifying a mighty nation with his small forces. But to assume that he is a true danger that could destroy America in and of himself, I, I think it's beyond hubris. Yeah, I would go so far as to say that if he wasn't a very canny fellow, I would call it insanity. Okay, we'll go to a second question from this gentleman. Are the military industrial complex in America attempting Oh, sorry. Are the military industrial complex in America, are they attempting to substitute the war on terror for the old Cold War? And was the, the communist paranoia in the late 50s, early 60s in America, was that symptomatic of a mass nervous breakdown amongst Americans? I, I happen to agree with you. The uh, Americans, to go back to what I said a little earlier, as a Christian nation, we're always full of guilt. We're full of guilt because we feel we're not as good as we claim to be, and we're Christians. Uh, I happen not to be, but you know, but I'm speaking as a nation now. We're Christians, and we are not good. We're not as good as Christians are supposed to be. So we have to have enemies that justify it. And for a long time, the communists, whether they were a danger or for decades after they ceased to be a danger, and it become a, Russia in particular become a poor third world country. The communists were still the evil empire with Reagan. It was nonsense. And now we've converted that over directly to terrorism. As if the terrorists are the second appearance of the communists, equal in force as, as, when they're not, and are uh, exactly the same. America needs an enemy. And the first thing to look for when you have a new name for an American enemy is uh, what are the latest factors that produce this need in America. 
for a new enemy. But uh, yes, terrorism is treated as if exactly as if we're communism, and neither was a real enemy to America. Excellent. Now, this gentleman here. Um, in a an interview. In an interview with um, Andrew, you said that you believe in reincarnation and that you might yes. uh, reappear as a cockroach. Uh, was that no, an well, elaborate well, joke? That's a joke, I hope. <laughs> Let me tell the joke. And, and thank you, sir, for killing my joke. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, the joke, that, the way I gave it was, when I come up before the monitoring angel, he said, Mr. Manor, you've been passed for reincarnation. I say, oh, I'm delighted. He said, now, what would you like to be? We ask everyone that. And I say, well, you know, I think, everything considered, I believe that I'd like to be a black athlete. I don't care where I'm born. I'll take a, a poor beginning in bad circumstances. But I want to be a black athlete. And the uh, monitoring angel says, oh, Mr. Manor, we really uh, are so oversubscribed. Everybody these days wants to be a black athlete. So uh, he says, let me see what you are. He says, oh, we've got you down for, uh, oh, 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 we've got you down for a cockroach. He says, however, here's the good news. You will be the fastest cockroach on the block. <laughs> Wonderful. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Say, Naylor, thank you. Say, those are not my beliefs. <laughs> Um, you're obviously in those last gradations of your time, and I'm thinking, of course, of Pablito Picasso, who you dedicated some time to with a book, uh, Picasso as a Young Man. Uh, recently, I spent some time on Mas Notre Dame de Vie, where Picasso spent his last years isolated on the hilltop of Moujon, where he kept his children away from him in those last years that he said we could concentrate uh, on his work. Um, I wonder if you have any comments about Picasso. We're, of course, celebrating him here in the Capitol right now with two exhibitions. Uh, but in particular, uh, at the expense of, of his family life, uh, who he cut out, uh, young Pablito the Younger, who, of course, uh, swallowed a liter of, uh, of bleach uh, because he couldn't spend time with Grandpa. I'm wondering if you have any comments uh, about Picasso in that last uh, phase of his time. And, and if uh, the concessions that he made were in his interest. Sir, that was a very long speech, and I don't know what the question Okay, you have nothing to add to that, Norman, I take it. Okay, uh, let's quickly go to another question. We're trying to get as many questions in here as we can. Would people please let me see very clearly if they want to ask so we can choreograph this? Yes, sir, stand up. You've recently written about Hitler. Your colleague, Philip Roth, has recently published a book about anti-Semitism in America. Would you like to say something about being a Jewish author in the 21st century? I believe I've said it already when I mentioned that uh, when I was nine years old, my mother used to uh, just ruminate and fulminate and, and fret over the existence of Adolf Hitler and say he's going to kill half of us before he's done. If you're nine years old and you hear that and believe it, and then you come to see it, see Hitler come and don't forget, when I was nine years old, I was 1932, my mother was an advance of the period. 
Hitler came to greater and greater power through the 30s, and uh, not to mention the powers in the war. And so um, it affected, it absolutely affected everything in my life. And um, I think I would have supposed that it was true for Roth. Yes, sir. Um, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Miller. Um, you just answered one of the questions I was going to ask, but really, on that basis, do you feel that, um, given the world's not been short of tyrants who've gone out of their way to kill genocide, that Hitler deserves uh, perhaps our, our uh, almost uh, all-consuming attention over all the others, such as Stalin and Genghis Khan and etc. throughout history? I think there was a difference between Stalin that is unique. And it's the reason why I gave him a devil to empower him. Stalin was an immensely cruel, strong man who grew up in an extraordinarily strong, cruel environment. He was a very ugly man, but he was still a human being. In other words, he functioned, he functioned in the ugly way of an ugly human being. Hitler was, rel relative to Stalin, Hitler was a weakling. Uh, Hitler was a poet. Um, Hitler was a silly man. Hitler was hysterical. And yet, at occasional periods in his life, he had extraordinary political acumen. The period, for example, from 1932 to 1938 is absolutely remarkable. So I had the feeling that the only explanation for Hitler was that the devil had decided that he or she needed an answer to Jesus Christ. And God's Jesus Christ, and that Hitler would be that answer. And that was the uh, assumption on which I began uh, th that book, uh, The uh, <coughs> Castle in the Forest. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Mr. Mailer, um, George Bush has spoken much about democracy. I wonder what you think about democracy and whether it really exists. Yes, I think democracy exists. Uh, the image I use for democracy in my own mind is that democracy is like a marriage. A marriage can begin as something that's beautiful and good and fine and can deteriorate over the decades. Or a marriage can start under parlous circumstances and become better over many decades. The point is, with George Bush, I just wonder every time he uses the word whether he even knows how to spell it. The fact is, he, he has no grasp of democracy, I would say. He doesn't understand that the basic notion of democracy is that if there are more good people than bad people, you will have a decent society coming out of it. But a decent society is not a society that starts wars in ugly, tortured, feverish places uh, in which you have all the advantages, and um, they are not a true threat to you. So in that sense, uh, uh, I believe in democracy. I don't believe for one moment in George Bush's notion of it. Yes, sir. Mr. Mailer, do you believe that all good novels are necessarily in whole or part political? And to put a double barrel to that gun, do you feel that any of your novels have had an effect on the American public mind? It's possible, ironically, 
that the nominal mind that had the most political effect was the executioner's song. Because before it was written, uh, nobody was given the death sentence. The people were given the death sentence, but it wasn't exercised for about 15 years. After that book, because Gary Gilmore didn't want to be executed, there have been a few executions. Other than that, I don't know. I don't think novels affect politics directly or quickly. I think it's a slow business, very slow. And um, you'd be hard put to name which, which novels have political effects and which ones didn't. I think it's more that political novels create atmospheres for the young and, and form their politics. And if they then begin to make changes in, in, the, in the public view of how to govern a country, uh, it's very hard, hard to trace it. And it's not really a proper or appropriate to give the novel credit for it. That. You once wrote every good prize fighter must have a great ego. Is it true for every good novelist? What was that? Um, you once said a prize fighter had a great ego. Is it true also for a great novelist? I once had a prize fighter. I once had a prize fighter who won. Had a, uh, I'm sorry, sir, would you repeat you, the question? I, I didn't get know. the question. The question was, uh, you once said that every great prize fighter had a great ego. Is it true to say that oh, every great novelist has one too? Yes, that, that's probably the one. That's probably the one similarity we have with prize fighters. That is, we're willing. If you want to be an important novelist, you have to be able to take punishment. Reviewers, who are often immensely skilled, and just as often are uh, uh, fiendishly incompetent. You, you take your choice, you get a very skilled reviewer or a fiendishly incompetent reviewer. Either one can do their best to uh, slay some amour propre in you so that you end up, just as a prize fighter ends up taking a lot of beatings in the course of becoming a champion, so a good novelist takes a great many slurs and um, uh, pinpoint pricks and savage wounds to his or her notion of themselves as a talented person. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Mailer, I think it's the same novel, The Fight, and it appears to me that you were one of the few Westerners outside of uh, Ali and Foreman's camps who attended the fight in Kinshasa. Could you actually enjoy that occasion? Or in the novel, you talk about President Mobutu being very overbearing over the whole occasion, um, just like your views on that time. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't get much of that. What was that? Your views on the time in Mobutu and the fight. What? What? Your views on the time of the fight with Mobutu in power. With who in power? I'm sorry, I'm at a loss with this question. It's reverberation. Could you make it simpler, please? Is President Mobutu in Zaire in the fight, yes. could, could, could you enjoy the time in Zaire, or was Mobutu too overriding, overpowering for the occasion? Was, was, did you enjoy the time in Zaire, or was Mobutu overpowering for the occasion? I didn't even think about Mobutu. Mobutu was one more uh, mediocre, oppressive, cruel African leader 
And here were two of the greatest fighters in the world in the most extraordinary activity, which is heavyweight prize fighting. I promise you, I, I never thought about Mobutu twice. It, it, there was no point. Uh, in my mind, I could have no effect on Mobutu, but in my mind, I could have a great effect on the two fighters in that sooner or later I knew I was going to write about them. Okay, one last question, please. I agree with almost everything you've said about Iraq and America, except for this thing about Sunnis and Shias being at each other's throats for a thousand years. In fact, before the invasion, there was a massive amount of intermarriage. Some Iraqis didn't know whether they were born Sunni or Shia. And actually, I think it's um, a divide and rule strategy of the occupation that's causing the sectarian violence now. What was that? He thinks that it's uh, our occupation that's caused the actual strife between the two. The what? The, the, our occupation has actually caused the, the strife. Oh, I would agree. I would agree that our occupation made things worse there. The, um, they'd gotten along in ugly fashion for centuries. And certainly for decades, they've been getting along in particularly ugly fashion. But they were not a threat to us. They were not even a threat to each other. But Bush needed a war. Let's stop the nonsense. He'd given a huge raise, a huge gift in taxes to the wealthy. There were a lot of things wrong in America at the time, small things, but, but eating away at the substance of belief in the democracy. He had no ideas. A war was exactly what he wanted. It, it, small, mean, domineering wars are, uh, are catnip to media, political mediocrities. And if Bush is nothing else, he's demonstrated it a thousand times, he is a political mediocrity. Thank you, Norman. You're, you're going to stay with us and sign some books. Uh, go I'm going to choose who's to have their book signed in one second, but I would just like to round off this part of the afternoon by uh, before asking the audience to applaud you, I would like to extend uh, a perception, perhaps, that Scotland has a long tradition of admiring commitment and moral courage in its writers, and you have exhibited that time and again through the years. We send love and respect here from Edinburgh, and I would ask the audience to applaud you now. Thank you.